by way of introduction, most of you, many of you, if not most, are old enough to remember a period of time in the 1980s when news kind of started circulating around the country about these people who got sick, and it was weird. They had this series of symptoms, and doctors weren't sure what the deal was. And the longer time went on, the more this happened. And, of course, in the end, they said, well, gosh, we've got a name for this thing. It's Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. We know it as AIDS now. It's old hat and old term. <clears throat> but, of course, one of the deals with it was that it, it fell principally to people who practice certain kinds of lifestyle, homosexual men, prostitutes, and drug abusers, because, of course, it was a, a disease that was spread from body fluid to body fluid. Having been in emergency services work, I'm, I can tell you this was a big thing. You know, It was one of those things you had to be educated about and aware of. Once, though, it became aware what this was and how it was spread, Again, I'm sure many of you remember these discussions. One of the questions that came was, especially in churches, is this a judgment from God? Because it falls primarily on people who practiced immorality, was this a direct divine intervention from God on people judging sin? Ask the question. The discussions were then, they're, they're today too. How about this one? Hurricane Katrina a natural disaster. That was a disease in the 80s. Natural disaster more recently. Hurricane Katrina killed uh, over 1,800 people. And as you know, there's arguments about what could have been done differently, etc. Lots of people died. And even if things had come out better, lots of people probably still would have died. But you have this natural disaster that inundates one of the greatest uh, natural disasters in history, recorded history in North America, and if you're in New Orleans, you're probably saying, you know, why us? Why here? Why my house? Why my relatives or whatever? And I just bring both of these up because it raises the questions when natural disasters strike, and that could be in all kinds of ways, plagues, disease, um, personal disasters, job loss, death, separation, what do you do with those things when they happen in your life? When you're going through the turmoil and in your own mind, how do you face them? How do you think about them? Is God getting your attention? Are you being judged? Is it just the way of things in life on planet Earth? What do you make of that? In 1915, you can read about this if you can get hold of a December 1915 National Geographic in 1915, there was a plague, really, of biblical proportions in the Middle East. And it was a plague of locusts. And it, it went from the Taurus Mountains in southeast Turkey, if you remember your geography, if you're looking at the East Mediterranean, came all the way down through the Middle East into Egypt. Plague of locusts, biblical proportions. Here, here's some of the stats on this. The first swarm started in March, and it lasted into October. And with this first swarm that came through, the females, of course, all laid eggs. And they would burrow into the soil to lay their eggs. They figured each female laid about 100 eggs. And these numbers are staggering, but <clears throat> they said they figured there were 65 to 75,000 eggs per square meter. When we think of this, you've got to think of movies like The Mummy or some science fiction to get some some image in your mind of the scale of this plague. Unbelievable. So the females come in the first 
leg of the plague, they lay the eggs. Their eggs hatch, and these first hatchlings, whatever we call them, I'm not a biologist, but in this first phase, they're like ants. They have no wings, and they'd crawl on the ground. It said they advanced about 400 feet a day. And you know, the grounds in front of them is green. And when they advance 400 feet a day, the ground just turns to death behind them, 400 feet per day. These things molted in May into bigger uh, insects that had wings, but they couldn't fly, but they could hop. And of course, this meant that they tended to get to a little bit uh, taller uh, growth as well. And then they molted again and became full-blown adults uh, by October, and the plague had run its course. But the ground was green and, and fruitful before them, and it was decimated behind them. There was nothing left to eat behind them. This was in 1915. Modern history, a plague really of biblical proportions. And this sounds exactly like the plague in the book of Joel that we're going to read about this morning. Joel means the Lord is God. We say Joel, but it it would be Joel, the Lord is God. And Joel had, in his lifetime, a plague, just like this plague in 1915. Biblical proportions in the life of this biblical prophet. By way of introduction, again, you guys know this is week two in our series, Majoring in the Minors. We're in the Minor Prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Joel, the second of those books. We are not sure when Joel lived. Uh, if you read commentators, there's, there's thoughts. It's anywhere between about 800 to 400 B.C. We have, no, we have no clue, really. We can't nail it down. There's nothing inside the book to nail it down for us, and there's nothing outside in other recorded history about the plague or other things to tell us when Joel lived. We only know it sometime within that time frame. But it's the plague of locusts that sets the backdrop for this short book and everything in it. We're going to start, we're going to jump right in at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And as always, you know, when we do a book in a week, we're just, we're picking out the high points and we're making some applications. Joel 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? He's speaking about the invasion, the plague. Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Tell them what? Well, what the locust swarm left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. There's the thought of the stages of the locust life that we're seeing here. What one group left, whatever was left, the next stage consumed. Verse 6, a nation, that is the locust plague, a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness, that is their destructions in their mouth. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. Verse 10, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Verse 12, the vine is dried up, the fig tree withered, the pomegranate, palm, apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. In summary, Joel says in verse 12, surely the joy of mankind is withered away. The cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. Sheep meaning the the, the 
animals that can live on the least, you know, graze across fairly barren ground, have nothing left to eat. There is this total destruction that Israel has witnessed in this plague of locusts. Loss of life and loss of hope. All their food is gone. The granaries are empty. It not only looks like it has been eaten away, but it has drought conditions as well. The question arises for me, what do you do when confronted when, with overwhelming loss, grief, and pain? If you're Israel in this day, and Joel's going to go on to something else in a minute, but what's the first thing he calls for in Israel? And I would, I would say, just as an application, what's one of the first things we should do when we suffer real painful loss when our life is overwhelmed by a plague, whatever form it takes. What do you do? One of the things Joel says right up front is, one of the things you do is you mourn. You mourn. This sounds simple, but it, and it is simple, but it's easy to overlook. One of the things we do is we mourn. And think of it this way. When you mourn the loss of something, you are recognizing its value. So if you lose a loved one and you mourn their loss, it's simply recognizing their value. You know, if you can't mourn, you probably can't celebrate very well either because both are flip sides, as it were, of recognizing the value of a person or a thing or a time in your life. So Joel says one of the things to do when you're overwhelmed by the plagues of life, whatever they look like, Joel says mourn. Start at verse 5. There's irony in this, but he says, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine it has been snatched from your lips. Now he's talking to drunkards, those who are doing things they shouldn't, with the fruit of the wine to excess, certainly. But he's telling them this, Guys, your days of celebration are over, and times of weeping are here. Look at verse 8. He says, Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. sounds like a contradiction. She's a virgin, but she has a husband. Remember that in biblical times, this would mean a young maiden who was betrothed. She was bound legally to the man she had not yet been married to. So the thought is this. She's betrothed. She's going to get married. All her hopes are going to be fulfilled. But before her marriage can even be consummated, she loses her husband. It's the sense of here's hope and I've almost got it in my reach. And then it's washed away. And Joel says, mourn like a virgin who's lost her husband before they could even have their wedding night. Verse 11, despair farmers, whale, vine growers, grieve for the wheat, the barley, the harvest of the field is destroyed. Short term, on the short term, here in Joel and in your life and mine, when you suffer real loss, it it could be a person, it could be a relative. For some of us, I think this week it was. It could be a relative. It could be a business loss. It could be a spouse or a child lost in practically or, or physically. It could be all kinds of things. Joel says one of the things we do when we suffer life-upending loss is to simply mourn. It's to recognize the value of the thing or the person or the time that you've lost. This is not a small thing. This is important. And I think... I think our culture, we trivialize this. You know, if you go to the Middle East today, I mean, look at the pictures on the Internet. When a mother in Palestine loses a son, what does it look like? It's the end of the world. Moaning, grieving, public crying out. You know, they had a little better handle in some senses on emotion in biblical times and in the Middle East perhaps today. But think of this. Not long ago we were in John 11, and what did Mary and Martha do when they lost their brother Lazarus? What is the picture in John 11? 
They're weeping and they're mourning and they're crying out. And when Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend, what does he do? He does the same thing. He weeps. We mentioned in that passage there's all kinds of speculation on what all does that mean Jesus wept, but it at least means this. His friend died, and even though he's going to bring him back, he weeps at at least the temporary loss and the pain and the loss it was to Lazarus' friends and family. He wept. Paul says in Romans 12:15, weep with those who weep. And then Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 says, there's a time to weep. And there's a time to laugh, but there's also a time to mourn as well as a time to dance. One of the things when you experience real loss, whatever that locust plague looks like, one of the things you do is you weep. It's a real loss and you recognize that and you go through a period of mourning. And you will have, and I'm sure you have already, or maybe sometimes we're the ones doing this, you'll often have in some kind of disaster in your life or loss of a loved one, you'll have people say things like, don't cry. Don't be sad, don't sorrow, but you know what? That's crazy. You're supposed to be. You've suffered a real, if temporary, loss. There's a real loss. It's real in your life. And when you mourn or when you weep, when you recognize that, you're simply recognizing the value of what you don't have anymore. So when when the locust plagues come, when your life's been upended, one of the things we need to do is recognize the value of what was lost by mourning, by sadness by a season of weeping. There's something else we need to do. Um, You know, in Joel's case, Joel is going to call the nation to national repentance. To national repentance. There's a message behind this plague of locusts. And one of the things we need to do when disaster strikes our life is go to God and ask, are you trying to tell me something? Is this from you because you're getting my attention because there are elements in my life that aren't what they should be and I need to turn around. I need to change my mind. I need to head in another direction. Listen to Joel in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Put on sackcloth, priests, and mourn. Wail, you who serve before the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you who serve before God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Joel 2.12, he says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Because he's gracious and compassionate, he is slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Theologically, these verses here in chapter 2, this is kind of the backdrop. This is the hope in Joel. He says, God says, rend your heart. That is, change your heart attitude about what's going on. Don't bother, God says, making an outward display of change if your heart's not in it. Rend your heart, tear your heart, change your heart, and return to the Lord. Why? Because He is gracious and He's compassionate. And even when calamity has already happened, God says He's a God who's glad to call it back, to bring it back. God uses the locusts in Joel's day in Israel to call the nation back to repentance. He says, turn around, 
because God's gracious and compassionate and he can relent from sending calamity. God's getting Israel's attention through the locusts. When Joel calls for national repentance, uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, who does he tell to repent? When this national call comes, who's called? Who's supposed to come and do this repenting? He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, the children, those nursing at the breast, that means the very youngest, Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who serve before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Who should come to this gathering? Who should come before God and call on Him publicly? Who should come and repent and call on Him for His mercy? Well, it's the oldest to the youngest and it's those with many other things on their mind. It's the bride. And the bridegroom in the bridal chamber called out of their honeymoon, as it were, to come repent with the rest of them. It's everyone. It's everyone. Joel calls everyone from oldest to youngest, babes to the eldest among them, and those with lots of other things on their mind, those who have newly been married, he says, come, put aside everything else, and come get before God to seek God and to repent. Joel is a little odd in that, you know, if you read most of the prophets, God tells them all the ways in which they've sinned and missed the mark. So when he calls them to repent, he says, repent of these things, quit doing these things. You don't have that in Joel. You have a very general phrase. You have the phrase, rend your heart, return to the Lord, return to me. That's what you have. He doesn't doesn't set out a list of sins, of specifics. And apparently in Joel's day, and for you and I today, as far as application, What that means is it can mean anything for any of us. It means God and I, you and God, any one of us as individuals, we know if there's something between God and us. And God says, I'm not spelling it out for the nation, but in any and every way in which you know you're out of my will, return, repent, and turn around. He doesn't specify the sins, which means it leaves it general and open, which means any of us can come and say, Lord, in these areas, I need to return and repent. And someone else can say something entirely different. Lord, I recognize you've inflicted pain. You got my attention. I've got before you and I realize I'm out of whack in these areas of my life that may have nothing to do with the person next to you. Joel leaves it fairly open-ended. All God says is repent and return. You know that life on earth is going to bring difficult times um, because sin and death still are the rule. It's the norm on this planet. It's not been fully redeemed yet. You and I will experience uh, hardships, disasters of one sort or another, big or little, heartbreak, loss, real suffering, real loss, that will just be because we still live on the earth. There will be other times in our life, though, where we know some hard, difficult time has come and we know God is saying, I'm getting your attention. So when difficulties arise, if you're not sure, this is easy. Go to God and say, Lord, are you using this to get my attention? And I don't think you have to play a guessing game. I think if God sends affliction into your life because he wants to get your attention, you'll know. You'll know you'll know I'm out of line with God, I recognize that, and like a spanking to a child, God's just 
affected me where it hurts so that I stop and say, okay, I realize I need to get right with you. If you stop and say, Lord, are you trying to show me some specific sin in my life? Are you trying to get my attention on something particular? And he's not. There's comfort in this because you can still know this. God says he'll take anything and everything in your life and mine, and he'll use it in some creative way for our good. And primarily, that may not mean that it feels good. It may not mean that it looks like anything we want, but it's at least this, God's conforming us to the image of his son. It may still be, it may just feel hard. It may still just feel like loss, but we submit ourselves to God in that, and we say, God, we know that you've promised to use even difficult things in my life for my good, and you'll at least do this. You'll make me more like your son through this difficult time. But the disasters, the plagues of life, they do bring mourning, and they should also bring reflection. Lord, are you speaking to me through this? And if so, we order the things in our life aright. We take that opportunity to turn back to God. And if not, we say, Lord, we entrust the situation to you. Uh, In Joel also, this plague that he experienced, it's actually a precursor to a future plague that I believe has not yet happened. It's a plague not of locusts, but of nations. It's a plague not of insects, but of people. Listen to this in Joel chapter 3. God says to Israel, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And by the way, there is no valley in Israel called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. This, this is meant to conjure up a word picture for them. Jehoshaphat means God or Jehovah will judge. So God says in the future, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of my place of judgment. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. God is, as it were, he's taunting the nations in this future event in which he calls the nations to come to Israel like the locusts because he's going to judge them there and destroy them. So in this taunt and this call at verse 9, he says, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. <clears throat> Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment. There I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. This is not a harvest you want to be a part of. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. This is a winepress of judgment and wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This is not an evangelistic verse. It's often used that way. The valley of decision is the valley of God's judgment. God's not asking people to make decisions. God has made the decision and he is bringing judgment. Verse 15, the sun and moon will be darkened, the stars won't shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. 
Joel says, God says through Joel, just as they'd experienced this plague, this invasion of locusts coming through the land that decimated the land in Joel's day, God says there's going to be a future day in which there's another plague, but it's a plague of people, it's the nations. But God brings them into the land of Israel because He's going to judge them there. And He is going to roar from Zion. God is going to come out and be their deliverer. And the valley of decision is the place in which God brings the nations together to bring judgment about that Israel would have this future plague, this invasion, not of insects, but of people, but God would come in and would rescue them. I hope this language sounds familiar to you. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know that Revelation draws direct quotes out of Joel. So phrases like, swing the sickle, the winepress is full, the blood overflows to the height of the horse, The sun and the moon will be dark and the stars no longer shine. This is all the language of Revelation. Those are direct quotes out of Joel. With this yet future day when God would bring the nations into Israel and would judge the armies of the nations there. But God says there's a future plague, nations coming in, but don't worry because I'm going to stop that plague as it were. I'm going to bring sit in the valley of decision and I'm going to stop that plague. Not only, though, will God deliver them from this future plague, but he's going to usher in times of unprecedented blessing. Joel 2, starting at verse 19, The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. 21, Don't be afraid, be glad and rejoice. The Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, animals, for the open pastures are becoming green again. The trees are bearing fruit. The vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. He's given you the autumn rains again. He sends showers as He did before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Of course, when Joel writes this, there is no bounty. There is no prosperity in Israel. But he says the time will come when the land is overflowing with prosperity again. Verse 25, great verse. God says, I will repay you. Some versions say, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts. You will have plenty to eat again until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Verse 27, then you'll know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. God says there's this future day coming when Israel will be fully blessed in the land again, and, and the land will overflow with material prosperity. And By the way, you remember that the covenant that Israel was in with God was that if Israel obeyed, they got material blessing. If Israel disobeyed, they would be cursed physically. So this was a promise that in their future, in that covenant God had with them, they would yet enter into this time of great blessing. One of the reasons I love verse 25, remember that the plague has come in judgment. It's to get their attention because they've left God behind. But God says in verse 25, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Uh, God is so merciful and he's so compassionate. We don't count on this, but... Oftentimes, God is pleased, even when you and I have made conscious decisions against His will, direct disobedience. God is pleased at times, it's at His discretion, which He pays back the years. He restores the years the locusts ate. 
Remember, the locusts were sent in judgment. Israel's out of line with God. But God says, you know what? I'm going to give back. I'm going to restore what, what you lost in that period when I was judging you. When I sent those locusts to get your attention because you were out of my will, I'm going to give back what you lost. I love this. This goes back to the verses in 13 where God says, why should, I, why should you call upon me? Because I'm merciful and compassionate. And I am glad to relent or to call back judgment when you repent, when you are restored to me. So the purpose for God is not to punish for punishment's sake. It was to get them to turn around, to look up and to be restored to God. Verse 25, this, this thought that God would give back what the locusts had eaten. This is, a, this is a verse I love because it tells me even when I blow it badly, there's still the chance that God in his mercy and compassion, not because I can demand it, but because of the kind of God he is, may restore what I lost by my own volition, by my own bad choices. Beyond this material blessing, though, look at verse 28. <clears throat> Joel talks to Israel about a day in which God would not only pour out material blessing on the land again, but in which an unprecedented, unparalleled blessing spiritually would be theirs. Verse 28, God said, Afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And everyone, verse 32, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. God said for Israel, guys, not only will you have this future invasion of people, which I'll judge, but afterwards I'm going to give you this unparalleled material prosperity. But besides that, I'm not just going to bless you in the land. I'm going to take my spirit, just like a pitcher of water, and I'm going to pour it out on you. And it won't just be on a select few. It won't be like on Moses or on the king only. It'll be on everyone in all the land, men and women, servants, old and young. You're all going to get my spirit. Now, this has not happened nationally for the nation of Israel. You know from Acts 2, Peter quotes Joel. He quotes this passage. On the day of Pentecost, at the birthday of the church, when the disciples are gathered in the upper room and the spirit blows through like a wind and tongues of fire come above their head, and they go outside that room and they start speaking in languages they've never learned before. And the Jews in Jerusalem think they're drunk. And when Peter goes to explain it, he says, no, you don't understand. This is what Joel spoke of. This is what it looks like for the Spirit of God to be poured out on men and women. This is it. <clears throat> this is it. I believe that this is not only true for the church, the church gets the blessing of Joel, the Spirit being poured out, but Israel will get this blessing in the future. And if you read passages like Romans 11 and Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38, you'll read about these future times in which God restores the nation of Israel. Paul says in Romans 11 that we Gentiles, we nations, have been grafted in, <clears throat> excuse me, like an olive tree that God cut off a, uh, an olive, took a wild olive and grafted it in. Abraham is the native olive tree that we are grafted into. Thank you, sorry. That we're grafted into, but the day would come when God would graft back in his own natural people, Israel. So I look at these passages in these days and say, this is great. The church gets what Israel will yet get in the future. God will keep all of his promises to Israel. They'll still be blessed in the land. There's dark days ahead. You guys know this is all prophetic stuff, which we're just 
scratching. We're not getting into any specifics here. But he told Joel and he told the nation, guys, that plague, you've had it in your day, it was hard. There's going to be a future plague, but I'm going to come in and judge those nations. And afterwards, you're going to be blessed like you've never been blessed before. Joel uh, brings up these great reminders for us, just rehearsing, refreshing, going back through. First with this, when you experience a plague in your own life, whatever it looks like, whatever loss it is, take time to mourn. If it's a real loss, it has value, and you lost it. I remember when my dad died, uh, the guy that came to pick up my dad's body was a guy I'd worked with in the past, and I didn't know what he might say, but he said... um, I'm sorry for your loss. And I thought, that's a great line. I've got to remember that. I'm sorry for your loss. It doesn't mean you you can change anything. It doesn't mean it wasn't time for that person to die. It doesn't mean it, it could have happened otherwise. It just means I recognize you lost something. You lost someone of value. I'm sorry for your loss. When you and I suffer real losses, you can recognize that. That's called mourning or sorrow. That's appropriate. It's not supposed to end in despair for us. We, have, we go through a period of sorrow and mourning. We recognize the loss, and then we get on. And one of the things we get on to is we've got to take those opportunities to get before God and say, Lord, are you using this? Is this pain, is this loss, is this plague in my life? Is it here because you're getting my attention because I need to change some element of my life? You know, the truth is, even if God hasn't sent something specifically to get our attention. The truth is, if we experience pain on any day of the week or the month or the year, there's probably something God would want to talk to us about. Some element of our life that's not right, that gosh, what a great time to listen. So anytime you experience your own plague, your own loss, your own disaster, whatever that looks like, ask God, Lord, what what should I be hearing from you and what area in my life are you trying to call me back to yourself in? And by the way, this is the weekend before the 4th of July. Uh, We're part of a nation that over time, like Israel, we just drift further and further away. And, And you know, whether it's the old or the young, or the people who are preoccupied with weddings or funerals or whatever, what a great reminder and what a great time to call out to God and say, God, we've blown it. As a nation that you've blessed remarkably, in the history of the world, what nation has been blessed like like the United States? In which we can call out to God as God's people in the midst of this country and say, Lord, we've blown it in numerous, numerous ways. And we're calling on you to say we repent, we're changing our mind about our own sins, and we're asking you to bring in blessing again. And I don't mean just material prosperity. We swim in material prosperity but spiritual prosperity, that our souls would prosper as we've materially prospered. What a great reminder, Joel, on the 4th of July weekend, that our nation needs repentance. And the last thing is this. In your life and mine, whatever losses or plagues we've suffered in the past, you know what? The truth is there's probably more to come. Unless we die today or tomorrow, there's probably more to come. But we've got this blessing just like Joel and just like Israel that whatever those plagues are, God says, you know what, I'm going to take care of those and I'm going to bless you afterwards. And for you and I, the truth is, as long as we're on this earth, as blessed as we can be, it's still the wrong side of the tracks related to heaven. And our life 
the eternal day that we're aspiring to, the place we long to be eventually, is not the earthly Jerusalem. It's not the United States. It's heaven in Christ's presence. That's the day we're looking towards. And so anything else short of that, it's just temporary. It's just temporary. Plagues are going to come. Blessing is going to come. But they're all just precursors to that great eternal day when we stand in Christ's presence. That's the payoff. It's not the short term. Let me close with chapter 2, verse 13 again. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting from sending calamity. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for above and beyond anything else, simply the promise that is your character. Lord, that you are compassionate, that you abound in loving kindness, that it's not because you have a desire to inflict pain that disaster or troubles or losses come, Lord. But you do you do allow them, Father. Sometimes you cause them, and it is for our good. Lord, the greatest disaster of all time was your Son on the cross bearing sins not his own. And yet out of that, out of what looked like defeat, victory was born, and the promise of eternity, Lord, was born. Help us to mourn real losses in this life, Lord. Help us to recognize and realize that there are real losses, real defeats, real plagues in our time on the earth. But that, Lord, after the dust has settled on all that, we have an eternal day. We have better than material blessings. We have your Spirit poured out on us today and fully met Christ's image perfected in us in eternity. Father, this July 4th weekend and week, I pray that you'd remind us to pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for our president, our governor, for those in authority over us, asking you to give them humility and wisdom. Lord, we recognize that without your blessing, uh, life, whatever it looks like, is not worth living. We need you, and we call out to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.